Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. Hey guys, it's Ruben from Dub. This is Connection Loop. I am on the line here with Scott Brinker. Scott is actually, I think, really important overall in the marketing technology community. Um, We actually had a chance to connect on Twitter and we exchanged a couple of tweets back and forth. And I'm really excited to kind of explore the future of marketing technology. I've also loved to learn about his origin story and then his take on video. So Scott, would love to see your story and how you kind of got into that chair. Wow. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast here. Yeah, man, the marketing technology space. It wasn't that long ago that marketing technology was probably considered an oxymoron, right? I got into this space really around early 2000s, was running the technology team at a web development agency. The agency would get hired by the marketing team. I was running the tech group. It would become my job to then do the shuttle diplomacy to the IT department of that same company because marketing and IT could not talk to each other. And it was fascinating, right? Because, you know, shuttling back and forth between these two different professional communities, two things were true. One is they were coming at this from just very different perspectives and they used different language and, you know, the incentive structures were very different. But at the same time, the goal that they were reaching for, the things that they wanted to build were so clearly entangled and twined together uh, that one kind of basically saw was inevitable that these two groups are going to have to collaborate. And so that's really what led to this creation of almost this hybrid kind of professional, what we call a marketing technologist, someone who is actually comfortable in both worlds. And so, yeah, I got started writing the blog Chief Martech around that community. And boy, it's just been a ride ever since. Well, I mean, I really connect to that story because I am among that community of marketing technologists and I've been at it for, seems like 10, 15 years now (laughs) in various different iterations. You know, I've kind of navigated myself around a number of, you know, CRM systems, marketing automation systems, you know, I've broken a lot of stuff, I've created a lot of stuff. So appreciate your involvement. One of the things that I really found interesting that you said was that, you know, marketing and IT, historically, there's been a little bit of a disconnect between those two departments. And I would even add to that, that add sales to that, Mm -hmm. sales, marketing, and IT, and all of a sudden, you've got clicks from high school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. It's interesting. Like, so yeah, when we first started wrestling with this, it was definitely the marketing and IT were, you know, perhaps the two groups struggling the most, partly because I think IT was, you know, ultimately going to struggle with this much bigger challenge of essentially the democratization of technology, things that used to be 100% controlled by IT, just as the world went digital and every department went digital and every business is digital and every professional is digital. At some point, you basically can't do it all. You can't control it all. But in many ways, I think marketing was kind of like the vanguard of that movement and IT and marketing struggle a bit with like, okay, well, what does this new world look like? Like, how do you empower marketing to leverage technology, you know, in its own work? But at the same time, yeah, I mean, all the things that IT has traditionally been concerned about 
about, you know, I mean, security and performance and SLAs and compliance, you know, those things are still incredibly important. And so finding that balance was really challenging. But I think you're right. I think in general, like the world has moved forward there. It's not perfect yet, but there's a lot more balance. But now you see the struggle that digital has brought, you know, of connecting different teams across the org. You know, it's not just marketing and sales, but now also like marketing and customer success. And, you know, again, teams that aren't like somehow diametrically opposed to each other, but they're struggling with how do they collaborate a lot more deeply in a world where the customer is really expecting that. I remember the first time that I enabled a marketing person to build a landing page by themselves. And it was a phenomenal experience. It felt so good because it's like I was showing someone a path to communicate and to be able to build something that their prospects, their clients could look at where they didn't have any dependency on an ID department. And I think it was a kind of a profound moment for me, at least, because you know I realized that was the future at that moment. I realized that there would be a time where marketers could be self enabled to be able to integrate, build, you know, do the things that they need to do to get their campaigns out there, to get their messages out there, to get their stories out there. And I think since then, I think it's a phenomenal ride, you know, for I think marketing folks, but then also marketing technologist folks. And uh, I've just been a really big fan of that. I mean, one of the things that I get from you is that you have a really great grasp on the whole macro perspective of really the marketing technology ecosystem. And that's something that I would love to always be able to kind of look at more from a high level perspective. So what does it look like to you? What does the future of marketing technology look like to you? There's a lot of talk about AI and ML and all sorts of really cool fancy stuff. What's your take on this? Yeah, wow. It is, I mean, first of all, just getting one's arms around the scope of the marketing technology industry is surprisingly difficult challenge. You know, one of the things I guess I'm known for, infamous for maybe, is, you know, over the years, I've kept charting that landscape that tried to like map the various marketing technology companies out there. And it got to a place where, yeah, I mean, it started with a few hundred and next it was a few thousand. You know, the last one was more than 7,000. And and in the process, I've completely failed because like I end up just the scale is such that I keep missing, you know, huge swaths of companies out there. So it's an incomplete landscape at that. But it's like you look at this explosion of all this innovation and all this entrepreneurial energy, you know, that's rapidly iterating on better ways for marketers to connect and engage with their audiences. And it's simply amazing. But I think, yeah, you know, one of the challenges we have as marketers is, okay, it's almost like an embarrassment of riches. You know, how do we find the pieces that are most relevant to us? How do we manage that in a coherent fashion? And I think that's really where the shift of the industry is focused is like, okay, well, let's work on solving some of those challenges. So how do you put that infographic together? Because I was intrigued when I saw it. I was obviously a little bit flattered because Dub was right there in the video section. That was really cool to see. I think I tweeted you about that. And you guys were actually really quick to make a logo update, which was really satisfying. Do appreciate that. But how do you do that? Do you have a team that does that? I mean, are you doing the research? Is it a combination? What does that look like? Yeah, so I used to do all the research. I, I used to build a crazy slide in PowerPoint myself. And then a few years ago, yeah, the scale of it just exceeded that, which, you know, one person could do. So I've had a couple folks, uh, Anand Talker, who's a big marketing technology champion, and then a team at a company called Blue Green that I've worked with over the years, you know, who like, yeah, this past year, essentially, you know, they had nine people, you know, who were helping over a four-month period on the research and the analysis and then the actual layout of the graph 
traffic. So yeah, it's kind of gone a little bit out of hand, but yeah, we kept doing it partly because, I mean, it's just fascinating to me personally to just see how this industry continues to evolve and grow. And it also felt that, yeah, there was some degree to which that landscape is chaotic as it is. Um, that one thing it was helpful with is perhaps opening up the conversation, you know, helping people, you know, sort of at least get a 50,000 foot view of just the incredible scale of what uh, MarTech is. Every time I look online somewhere within either marketing technology or some business publication, I see an ad for another CRM. It's crazy. There's so many new <laughs> ones that are just popping up and they all have a little tiny micro niche. And, you know, it's interesting because I always wonder why would someone want to get into the CRM space? Because it's so incredibly flooded and there are so many players that have been at it for such a long time. And I think that obviously HubSpot has done such a phenomenal job, you know, growing out their ecosystem. I mean, my favorite aspect of HubSpot is most definitely the marketplace. It's most definitely the integrations, the ecosystem, the ability to connect the dots. You know, I'm a big fan of Zapier and I'm a big fan of various number of integrations. You know, we use HubSpot. We're very active in it. We integrate with a lot of things. We integrate with Intercom, you know, Zapier, Facebook, you know, LinkedIn. We have a whole list of integrations. Uh, we actually also integrate with an open source marketing automation platform called Modic, which a lot of folks don't know about. Um, which I also recommend sometimes for a specific type of person. But what are some of the things that we can expect from HubSpot? And I know that you guys did a, a big relaunch on the marketplace, and I'm a huge fan of that. But what else is coming? What's in the pipeline, at least that you can share? Yeah, well, we're really excited to have you as a uh, partner in the HubSpot ecosystem. Because I think this Thank whole you. idea of ecosystems really is one of the major trends we see in the industry. And it's really a reaction to the, that crazy landscape of, you know, 7,000 plus MarTech companies is, hey, there's all this amazing innovation and entrepreneurial energy in the MarTech space. But in order to make it consumable by most marketers who aren't necessarily, you know, enterprise architects themselves, you know, I, I think you've seen pretty much all of the major marketing clouds and marketing marketing platforms. I mean, you know, certainly Salesforce has done this for a long time, but, you know, Adobe and Oracle and HubSpot, I mean, a lot of these folks have really started to focus on, okay, how do we open up this platform? How do we work with partners to create a curated set of integrations of apps that are certified in an ecosystem so that a marketer, you know, basically once they've chosen their platform, if someone's chosen HubSpot as their, you know, primary platform, then for them to be able to go into that marketplace and say, okay, I am looking for ways to be able, you know, to create and publish exciting video content. Like, you know, we can narrow down now to a reasonable subset of folks of like, oh, okay, this is what these folks do. And I can click here and I can plug it in and it just works in my environment. And the data is being shared back and forth between them. So yeah, definitely. Uh, we're very excited about that. You know, I can't talk a lot about where things are going specifically in the future, but, you know, in general, things that, you know, we've made clear is we really believe this road of deeper and better integrations and ecosystem has a lot of runway ahead of it. You know, I've published a model that we've talked about four layers of integration where it's not just about exchanging data back and forth between apps, but how do you get apps to work better in a common workflow model? How do you get apps to be able to share more elements of user interface between them. So, you know, if a customer is sort of working in one tool, they can very easily pull in what they need from other tools right there. 
some of the concepts around governance of these ecosystems, you know, particularly as more and more companies are concerned with making sure they're in compliance, you know, with all these different data privacy regulations around the world. I think there's a great opportunity for ecosystems to work together to help assure customers of like, okay, if you get something from this particular ecosystem, you know, we've already done the, you know, the work to vet and validate certain data privacy regulations and just make it easier. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, marketers, they have a tough job. It is hard being a marketer these days. I mean, we talk about noise and MarTech, but it's pretty much every industry, every field. I mean, you know, because the global environment, you know, digital has shrunk this to a place where like anyone can compete with almost any company, almost regardless of scale. It's like, yeah, being a marketer in that environment is challenging. And so, you know, we want to, I think as much as possible as architects, MarTech product creators, our mission has to be to at least make the tools easier for them so they can focus on what they do with them. Well, that's well said. I mean, my definition of marketing in so many ways is a series of failures until you get some sort of a success and you scale that, you know, and then you go through that cycle over and over and over again. It's exhausting because it takes a lot of time. There's a lot of blood, sweat and tears. There's data along the way, but there's a lot of disappointment as well, you know, and as a marketer, as a technologist, I've sort of realized that I need to be very okay with the fact that I need to be able to build stuff and then break it and then rebuild it, and then break it, and then rebuild it. As long as I'm on some sort of a positive upwardly trajectory, you know, I'm in a good place. But a long time ago when I started out, I used to get a little emotional that I'd have to break down a campaign, or that I'd have to disconnect pipes, or that some sort of an API would bail, and there'd be a comma instead of a dot, and that would make everything break. And, you know, now I'm at the point, though, where it's it's a quarterly reinvention of our master campaigns, and then a weekly, you know, optimization of pretty much everything that we do. And and everything that we build now is built to be able to be broken and taken apart. I mean, what is your advice to marketers, you know, folks that are building up campaigns, a lot of the kind of people within the dub ecosystem, they're either small businesses or they function like small businesses where it might be a larger company, but the marketing technology or the video department or the marketing department, that might be a little bit modest. What are some best practices that you have when it comes to building, optimizing, creating, and then pulling data and then not being afraid to necessarily start over? Yeah, well, I think actually the way you describe what you're running at Dub is like the perfect example of this, which, you know, basically designing for change, essentially mm. expecting that, hey, you know, <laughs> the once upon a time, the way we used to architect, you know, marketing processes and marketing ops was like, okay, let's figure out what we're going to want here for the next five years and then build it out in that structured thing and it's going to be perfect and we'll get you know, the first version will ship in two years and the next iteration in three, which, I mean, again, no offense to marketing ops, this was how classic IT had always been built because, you know, for at least the 80s and the 90s and even going in the 2000s, people really did feel like they could predict the needs of their systems far enough in advance that they could do that sort of longer term planning and waterfall approach to building. But yeah, in today's environment, it's just things change too much, whether it's a threat, you know, some sort of competitive issue that comes up, frankly, you know, on a Tuesday afternoon and you just didn't see it coming. How quickly can you respond to it? But also even from a more positive perspective, you know, just opportunities, right? I mean, the way you described, uh, you know, the work you do at Dub, where again, you know, if you're looking at every week how things are performing and you're in a position where you can make even small changes to the dials of the levers to say, ah, 
ah, hmm, all right, based on that data, you know, let's try this and then learn from that and then make an adjustment the next week. I mean, that's so incredibly powerful. But in order to support that sort of approach, right, you really do need to design your systems in a way that they aren't rigid, that they have that flexibility, that you have the ability to break uh, pieces and rebuild them and swap them out without every single one of those being, uh, you know, some sort of major engineering project. Well, I, I mean, I like how you put that designing for change. I think that's a really important philosophy when developing. I also think that you kind of have to make play make-believe to a certain extent. You have to say, well, here's where we are now, and here's where we want to be in one, three, five years. And you have to say, if we're going to drive towards that and we're going to end up at that place, what is it that we can do now to make our campaigns, our ecosystem, our setup, whatever it might be, kind of ready for that modularity, that scale, that change? So I, I really like how you put that, you know, designing for change. That sticks to me. Yep. Easier said than done, but... Easier said than done. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, philosophically, we can aspire for it, yeah. Yeah, and so you wrote a book, Hacking Marketing. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, so hacking marketing, I guess, yeah, really the key theme of hacking marketing was looking at all these patterns we had learned over 20, 30 years of how we manage software development, things like agile practices in software development, things like <laughs> design for change, you know, modular design, you know, these sorts of concepts that actually were incredibly helpful as the software world started to accelerate the rate at which it would iterate and experiment. And it was fascinating in realizing, yeah, you know, 10 years or so ago that marketing was kind of going through that same transformation itself. Marketing was now in an environment where, at least technically speaking, it had the ability to experiment and iterate and respond to feedback in a very rapid fashion, but it didn't really have the mental models or sort of the management approaches that were designed for that sort of environment. So the whole point of hacking marketing was to try and take some these ideas from the world of uh, agile and iterative software development and recast them in a way that a non-technical marketer could say, oh, okay, here's how I could actually run this for content marketing campaigns that I'm doing, how I'm managing my website launch or some sort of product launch marketing support. So yeah, I had a lot of fun with the juxtaposition of the software world and the marketing world and how much overlap there's really become between them. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, you have your education background within computer science is phenomenal. I mean, you got your BS from Columbia, you got an SM computer science from Harvard, and then your MBA from MIT. So, I mean, that's an amazing <laughs> resume there. So why <laughs> marketing? Where, where I don't see marketing anywhere on your bio. So at what point did you sort of say, hey, listen, I'm going to be a marketing technology leader. When was that choice made and why? Yeah, I don't know that it was an explicit choice. I would say, you know, my background had largely always been entrepreneurial in the software world. And so I think as an entrepreneur, there's a certain dimension that is inevitably tied to marketing of just, I mean, you have to think about, okay, how do I actually get this to market? You know, how do I sell this to customers? So I always kind of had an affinity for that. But then, yeah, it was really in that mode when we were running the web development agency and we were being hired by marketing teams 
to then help build things for them. You know, I think that's where I really fell in love with the possibilities of like, wow, I mean, there's so much that marketing wants to be able to take advantage of digital environment. And at least, you know, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, the tools that they had at their disposal for that were incredibly primitive. And so it was very exciting to imagine a future that we are now <laughs> living into the nth degree where, yeah, I mean, the technical firepower that a marketing organization, a world class can bring to bear in how it finds and engages and delights customers is, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. It's been fascinating for two decades for me and hasn't gone dull yet. <laughs> well, we share that most definitely. And my next question, which is, with respect to artificial intelligence, I know you've explored this topic quite some a uh, bit. What does that look like for marketing? You know, when I think of chatbots and when I think of landing pages and conversion optimizations and different types of integrations and, you know, the right message at the right time, at the right device, at the right place, so on and so forth. You know, what can we as expect as marketers to, you know, in terms of what AI is going to do for us or not do for us? Yeah, it's a common question these days. And I think it's challenging because AI has become one of those concepts that's gotten hype quite a bit in the past few years, right? So, you know, there's certainly been, you know, some messages out there in the world of like, oh, wow, AI is just going to magically, you know, transform all your marketing for you. And I think reality is set in for most people that, okay, that's not happening anytime soon that way. But it's kind of interesting that on one hand, while there's been overestimation of what AI could do for marketing in the short term, in some ways, there's been a lack of appreciation for all the real world ways in which AI is truly infiltrating how we work. You know, I mean, like one of the examples you brought up, uh, chatbots is a great example. I mean, just some of the natural language processing AI that's involved in that, you know, some of the machine learning, like helping to be able to, you know, automatically find right answers or get people, you know, the right sort of action or the right sort of next step. You know, it isn't super sexy in some ways, but it's incredibly useful and helpful. It like, you know, accelerates the velocity, you know, by which customers are able to get resolution. Uh, we see these machine learning models in all sorts of stuff, right? I mean, everything from like, you know, lead scoring to churn propensity estimates to content personalization to even things like what's the best time to send an email to a particular prospect that they're most likely to, you know, uh, see it and open it. I mean, again, just all these like machine learning based models, you know, any single one of them, I would say, isn't earth shattering in its utility, but it's helpful. And then you take all of them collectively and you're like, well, actually, wait a second. We've made some pretty good progress over these past couple of years in uh, yeah, how real world AI has been absorbed by marketing and marketing tech. Love that. I mean, one of the things that we've noticed in our marketing is that if we focus on one tenth or one hundredth of a prospect size and add high levels of personalization, we get a 10 to 20x better ROI on our efforts. You know, when we really connect with people on a one-to-one -one basis, personalization, you know, we use technology, we use a lot of data, there's a lot of stuff in the back end, but if we at least give that experience of true personalization, understanding, you know, what their pain points are, and then providing some sort of a solution, we do really well with that. What I'm really curious to see, though, is that people get more sophisticated as they understand that there's more technology, more AI, more stuff that's happening on the back end. Are they going to get desensitized by some of this personalization within marketing? What is your take on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think at a high level, this has always been the struggle that marketing goes through is we come up with some novel new way of engaging audiences. And part of why it is effective is because it's novel, uh, you know, and then <laughs> we play it out uh, again and again and again. And eventually it's no longer novel and its efficacy starts to drop until we come up with some other new idea of how to do this. And then it starts over again. There's a fellow, oh, what's his name? Andrew Chen, uh, you know, one of the early great growth hackers, you know, he actually called it the law of click-throughs, uh, you know, and you can like Google it. It's like this pattern you just see again and again. So I think to some degree that's inevitable. I mean, in every tactic we try, there's going to be um, some sort of exhaustion that, you know, is likely to hit it over time. But I think when you really talk about personalization from a more fundamental level, which is to say, listen, what we're really trying to do is just make sure that when a customer comes and they want something, you know, they want a particular answer or they want a particular service, you know, like the faster we can get them the resolution to what they want, the happier they're going to be. I think that is actually an evergreen strategy. I mean, that Jeff Bezos you know, famously said, you know, it's not thinking about what's going to change over the next 10 years. It's about thinking about the things that aren't going to change over the next mm. 10 years. And, you know, I mean, like for him, it was low price and selection. And I don't know, I think for marketing, you know, this idea of, you know, customers quickly getting what they want, whether it's prospecting cycle or it's as a customer who needs a resolution to something, you know, and I think if we stay focused on leveraging technology to provide that, sort of efficiency and delight to the customer. I don't think that's going to get old. I think we'll still be doing that 10 years from now. So here's one for you. If someone wants to get really kind of sharp within the marketing technology space, they want to get themselves, you know, HubSpot, they want to add some automation, they want to get some drip sequences, they kind of want to go on that journey, but they're overwhelmed and there's just too much stuff for them to do. They don't know where to start. What recommendation would you have for them in order to kind of get started quickly, get some early traction, and then figure out a way to kind of iterate, improve, expand, and kind of scale and not feel intimidated? throughout the whole process. Yeah, well, I mean, this is, you know, I'm biased in my answer on this, but, you know, one of the reasons why I like HubSpot's approach to this is, you know, we don't view it as just giving people software. I mean, that's certainly a part of it is, you know, you can get this whole collection of capabilities in the HubSpot suite, but really one of HubSpot's key go-to-market approaches, HubSpot Academy, uh, which is really all content that, not content about HubSpot, you know, how to use our products. I mean, there's some of that, but really, the star content in HubSpot Academy is teaching people how to run, you know, even starting with basic digital marketing plays. How do you run inbound marketing approaches? How do you think about things like sales management in this environment with a CRM? And it's all in that mode of, you know, basically agreeing that for, you know, most businesses on the planet there, this is new territory for them, you know, whether they're just starting out or whether they're, you know, a more traditional business that's now trying to transform. And yeah, I think the big advantage of that kind of content is to exactly as you say, just, you know, get started and take a piece, learn that piece, experiment with it, be successful with it, and then start to expand from there. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think that you got to start small. I think a lot of people get intimidated. They don't know exactly where to start. I always say, you know, you have, there's 100 prospects that you have in your mind right now. If you're B2B, that's easy. You know, you can think of who those people are. If you're B2C, you might not know who those people are. You still have to find them. But if you can figure out ways to just better communicate with that small audience, and then as you get responses back and as you receive messages from them, as there's data that comes to you, you know, figuring out ways to kind of scale that 
and then kind of in a precog sort of fashion, get ahead of that. To your point, have content, have education. I mean, no one does content better than HubSpot. It just doesn't happen. I mean, you guys, it's amazing how much sort of keywords that you guys own when I search for email marketing or landing pages or video marketing. It's really kind of impressing. I guess my question for you in this is that, is that part of HubSpot's early DNA being a content focused company? When Brian and Darmesh were hacking at this in the early days, you know, were they thinking our go-to market is going to be content or is that something that they sort of realized that their best kind of ROI was from and that as a result that they needed to just go double down on that? Yeah, I think it was a bit of both. I mean, in many ways, the seed of HubSpot from a product idea was, wow, okay, it was, I think it started with like Darmesh actually doing some experimentation with his own blog and starting to understand, okay, well, if you produce really helpful content on these particular topics with these particular keywords, you know, you get rankings in Google and then that drives traffic and it grows and then that brings more people and more links and, you know, and so really the original vision of HubSpot and inbound marketing was to provide a product, but also really provide an education, the academy approach to other businesses to say, hey, this is actually very likely the future of how you're going to want to get discovered in the world for your business as well, too. Yeah, it's uh, very, very deep in the HubSpot DNA. You mentioned one of my favorite words in marketing, inbound. Where does that term come from? Brian and Armesh coined the term in the context of uh, launching HubSpot with the idea that most marketing up until then was in many ways push marketing, right? It was very an outbound sort of thing of like, okay, I'm going to interrupt people with, you know, advertising or I'm going to get lists for direct mail and just spam the heck out of them that way. And I mean, sales operated in largely the same thing, you know, cold calling was, I mean, certainly in B2B, like the way in which, you know, business this was just, yeah, I'll just get my list of people and start calling them, you know. And the truth is that mode of engaging people just, at the end of the day, wasn't particularly efficient, wasn't particularly, you know, I mean, in the absence of having anything else, it's what people did, you know. But I think the idea of inbound was that recognition that, hey, listen, you know, People have their own agency, you know, they're in control of their own destiny. And increasingly with the internet, you know, for them to just be able to, you know, go on a search engine and say, hey, listen, I'm looking for X and type it in and something comes up and then be able to go and learn about X and decide, oh, okay, like, you know, tell me more about this company or this product, you know, who are its competitors? What are my options? What do their customers have to say? I want to search for reviews, you know, that you get that thing that basically it becomes, it shifts the polarity. So instead of the company trying to just promote, promote, promote in an interrupt-driven way, yeah, you've got this content and presence out on the web that really allows people to find you when they're ready. So it becomes inbound. And what do you think the metrics are? I mean, I think a lot of folks, definitely to your point in B2B, are still in a very outbound focused mindset where we need to call, we need to email, we need to get cold stuff out there, and we need to bring people in. What do you think the value, if you were to be selling why someone should convert from an outbound focused company to an inbound one, what would you present them with? What are the data points? What are the ideas? Is better conversions cheaper? What does that look like? 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's essentially across that entire journey. I mean, you know, particularly trying to like buy advertising as the sole means of getting initial leads just is an incredibly expensive proposition. I mean, the more leads that you can generate through organic traffic, whether it's from search engine or social or review sites or stuff like that, man, that's golden. So that's then at the top of the funnel. But then again, it's like, okay, well, how am I engaging with people all the way through that? You know, if you're still relying on cold calling in today's world, I mean, again, you, you can just look at the stats on this. The, the problem is people just aren't picking up the phone. <laughs> they just, <laughs> you know, not only are they not picking up the phone, you know, they're not returning their voicemails. I mean, you send them cold emails. They just ignore it. You know, it's spam filled. It's just like, you know, just the efficacy of trying to break through. I think the economics of it are just, you know, steadily in decline. And so you really, yeah, it, it's absolutely an economic argument that you need need to have an engine of attraction such that people are choosing to engage with you and then the way in which at each step along that engagement you're living up to those expectations you're overperforming in those expectations giving them more information better information better service better experience you know Brian in his inbound keynote you know referred to a bunch of examples of these experience disruptors and I think that's a really cool way of looking at it. it's companies that just they become so easy and delightful to do business with that that unto itself, you know, becomes a attraction for new customers and an accelerant to conversion rates. Well, we went through that whole entire process in our early days and we said we want to be an inbound focused company. We want to be a content marketing company. We want to have people come to us. We want to be pull based, not push based to your point. And I feel like it was the best decision that we made because it really created our DNA of creating content and going through that process of everything that we do is a documentable opportunity, right? Instead of having conference calls, we have podcasts. Instead of hosting closed, really small webinars, you know, we do live videos or produced videos. You know, instead of coming up with an email that we write with a high value prospect, we do an ebook or we write a blog post or we get something out there that multiple people can consume. And then, you know, sort of a waterfall method, we start to repurpose that content mm -hmm. and then we build upon it. You know, I was talking to Bruce Clay actually at this B2B uh, conference actually in LA last week. And, you know, he's coined as the quote unquote father of, of SEO. And he had some really interesting things to say about this. You know, he's been building a library actually since 1996 of original content on his website. So for SEO, you know, his firm tracks very high. And I think that he was sort of one of those early visionaries of knowing that you kind of build upon this canon of work. If you can just have this simple mindset of what are people typing in? What are their problems? And then just providing content to address that as a solution. If you can just do that and scale that and rinse and repeat that over and over and over again, and just forget about the large picture, but just on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis, build your canon of content that eventually, one year, two years, three years, five years, the world is going to look very different from you because you're going to own it, you know? And when I look at HubSpot and when I look at, you know, a lot of folks that kind of invested early into content, you know, they're kind of reaping the benefits. And I think that you're 100% correct. And I, I think more people need to have that mindset. They need to realize that it is about inbound. It is about pulling people in, not pushing things upon them because their eyes are closed, their ears are shut. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but in the new iOS 13 on Apple, there's actually a switch to <laughs> silence <laughs> unknown callers, you know? And this, this is basically totally devastating to the telemarketing industry because now when all those calls that we used to get, I mean, I switched it on, you know? Yeah, so I, no, I, I mean, 
mean, like, who, really who has time that. for, yeah, that? Right? No, it's, uh, yeah, it is a new world. It um, is, you know, and, you know, I also think video is, is a big component of that. I'd love to get your take on overall kind of where video fits within the ecosystem. Yeah, well, I mean, there's been so much innovation in the video space because, I mean, again, like, I mean, you know, YouTube and the phenomenon that is YouTube, you know, has really shown us, right? I mean, we are just in a world now where video has become such a preferred channel for people to learn, you know, be able to see, uh, like, okay, what exactly does your product do? Like, how's that work? You know, what's your customer doing? You know, what's the story? You know, don't give them these pages and pages, you know, long prose you know, be able to tell that story in a very, you know, engaging way, in a very visual way. You know, you get the human dynamics in this, you know, it's an actual person, you know, who talks to you at different stages of, you know, the marketing journey or, you know, the sales journey. Yeah, I mean, I still feel like we're in the early innings uh, with the way in which we're adopting video capabilities in marketing and sales and customer success. I mean, there's, uh, uh, I, I think, at least 10 more years of us like experimenting and pushing the envelope of, you know, how can we leverage this medium to better engage our audience? Uh, I think it's really exciting. Yeah, well said. I mean, we're constantly looking for data. We're looking for feedback, suggestions. You know, Dub is really focused on allowing people to communicate with video on a one-to-one -one basis, but also on a broadcast basis. So we have like deep integrations into email systems and HubSpot, obviously, but then also a lot of kind of smarter ways to embed videos, add video widgets to pages, and then track data back on a contact level back to CRMs, right? And also the Dub dashboard. Is there any kind of features or any innovations that you would love to see happen in the video space? I'm just curious to get your notes on that. Anything that you've been sort of waiting and wanting to see as we develop our... Yeah, well, I love what you're doing. I'm actually more in a position that you educate me, uh, <laughs> you know, on uh, what's possible, what should be possible. But, you know, I think one of the things you mentioned there that I find really intriguing is the ability to instrument this better. And I think instrument it increasingly at a higher level in which the way the marketing and sales organization actually sees this as a fundamental channel in how it's engaging with its audience. So I think data-driven stories that really help bolster the argument for this investment, I think are going to be beneficial to the whole industry. I love that. So where can we see you speak? I know that you uh, occasionally uh, function as a keynote speaker. Any kind of events coming up? Yeah, quite a few. I guess if you go to chiefmartech.com slash speaking, I have got a calendar of a few coming up. So uh, looking to be in San Francisco uh, towards the end of this year for a growth marketing conference and hopping around the world a bit before then too. So uh, never a dull moment in MarTech. <laughs> Amazing. And then where can folks find you on social? Twitter, LinkedIn. Yeah, etc. so I am on Twitter. I am Chief Martech without the H at the end. So it's C-H-I-E-F-M-A-R-T-E-C. And it's also that same chiefmartech.com is the blog. On LinkedIn, I am S.J. Brinker. And uh, yeah, reach out. Would uh, be delighted to connect with you. Amazing. Scott, thank you so much for your time. Thank Appreciate you. It was great to done. chat with you. Yeah, fun conversation. Thanks, Scott.